So I, I think I mentioned in a message I gave before that I believe there's really only two questions that you need to answer every morning when you awake. And it has nothing to do with which sandwich you're going to order in the drive through at McDonald's. They're bigger, bigger questions. The two questions are, who is God and who am I? Big, big questions. But our search for these questions is what defines us as human beings, as unique creations. And in the statement that I just made there, you can see a little bit about what I believe the answer is to those questions, because if we're unique creations, who is God? He's the creator. Who am I? I am a creature. I'm his creation, his offspring. So as we think on these questions and study the scripture and walk in the spirit and pray and learn to hear his voice, he reveals more and more to us about who he is and who we are. And I don't think we'll ever have a complete understanding of who God is. And the reason for that is there's just so much to know. I think we're learning more and more about God now as we walk with him, as he reveals himself to us. But I don't think that will ever end. I think that we'll always be learning more and more and more about his greatness and his goodness throughout all eternity. Psalm 145.3 says, Great is the Lord, highly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. So who is God? He is my loving Heavenly Father. Who am I? I'm his beloved child. Who is God? God is a teacher. I am his student. God is a righteous judge. I am a condemned man who has been pardoned. God is my master. I am his servant. It's important to make the point that we would know nothing to the answers for the answers of these questions unless God had chosen in his grace and love to reveal himself to us. You don't figure out God. He either shows himself to you or not. Matthew eleven twenty seven says, No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now Ben preached recently about the encounter that Paul had with the Athenians on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17 where Paul says to them, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. And even as some of your poets have said, for we also are his children. The, the Greek word for grope is... Uh, Salfasian. And to get an idea of what it means, imagine that 
you're in a pitch black room and there's someone else standing in the room with you and you're trying to find them so imagine what you would be doing you know you would be kind of that's that's the groping that Paul is talking about groping for God even though he's not far from each one of us but because of the revelation of God that we have in Christ although Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 we only understand in part we only see as a puzzling reflection but we no longer grope in the dark because Jesus has revealed God to us and what I want to talk a little bit about today is part of the answer to the first question. Who is God? God is good. Let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you are good, truly good, and that every good and perfect gift, every blessing, every mercy, Every provision in all things comes from you, Father, with whom there's no change and no shifting shadow. We thank you, Father, for your goodness, for the love you've shown us, shown us in your Son, and it's in his name we pray to you, in his name we come to you, and in his name we give thanks to you. Amen. Now, every craft has its own language, which is unique to it. So whether you're a plumber or an auto mechanic or a theologian, you have kind of your own language. So in the language of the theologians and their craft, the question, who is God, might be posed as, what are the attributes of God? One of those attributes is that God is good. And again, back to the Athenians that Ben spoke of last week and their altar to the unknown God. They were content with really not knowing what God's attributes were. Or perhaps more accurately, they decided we can't know what God's attributes are. So he gets a nod of acknowledgement, the unknown God, gets a nod of acknowledgement in case one of those attributes happens to be that he's malicious. So it's kind of like, well, Here's your altar. Please don't squish us if you exist. Other than that, kind of a big shoulder shrug. And this is actually where a lot of people's spiritual position is today. I don't have an idea if there's a God or what he's like, they would say. It doesn't seem to have much relevance to me. I was not raised a Christian. I was raised an agnostic. And my father, for most of his life, basically gave me this religious instruction about God. I don't know. Go find out for yourself. So that was pretty much the sum total of my religious instruction. So at about age 14, I started taking a serious look, as serious as you can at age 14, at Buddhism and Hinduism. I was trying to grope after God, I was trying to answer these big questions. And when God finally apprehended me later in my teens 
and revealed himself through the gospel, one of the most wonderful things I began to understand was that God was not a force. God was a person. God was good. God cared. He wasn't distant or aloof. He wasn't angry at me, or maybe even worse, indifferent toward me. So the good news that Jesus came to bring us was not just that God was willing to forgive us, to save us, but it was possible to be restored to relationship with him. We can know God. We can be at peace with him. We can walk in life with him and experience a relationship with him through the Holy Spirit, which is his precious gift toward us. So how do we know God? How do we know what he's like? How do we know that he's good? Consider this following passage from John 14, 6 through 10. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip was a little confused. And he said, Lord, show us the Father. That'll, that'll be enough for us. And Jesus said, Philip, I have been with you all this time. And still you do not know me? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own. Instead, it's the Father dwelling in me, carrying out his work. In another passage from John 8, 12 through 19, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And the Pharisees challenged him. He said, yeah, here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. And Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. For I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you have no idea where I came from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. Remember that phrase. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. And they asked, Where, where's your father? And Jesus said, you do not know me or my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. John 1.18. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God 
and is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Hebrews 1.3 The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. In Mark 10, 17 and 18, there's an encounter between Jesus and what the typical commentary refers to as the rich young ruler. It says, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him and said, good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Wait a minute. Did, did Jesus just say he wasn't good? Is that what he said? That's a little strange. <clears throat> because if somebody asked you or I if Jesus was good, we would certainly say yes, he is the goodest man who ever lived. But Jesus himself did not define good in the same way most people might be tempted to define it. He did not ascribe goodness as anything that originated in himself. Any word or deed of his that was measured or evaluated against some human criteria. For Jesus, the definition of what was good was what the Father was speaking, what the Father was doing, and how that was being accomplished in and through him. That was how Jesus defined good. His good was in God, his Father. Another reading of this meeting with the rich young ruler is in Matthew, and it's, it gives kind of a little different understanding of the encounter. In this reading, the man comes up to Jesus and says, Teacher, what good thing must I do to obtain eternal life? And Jesus says, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. And what you can see from that is this young man was not interested in a relationship with God. He just wanted to understand the terms of some sort of transaction by which he could obtain what he wanted from God. There's a big difference. So Jesus lays out those terms, basically says, oh, you want to go that way? Okay, here's what you got to do. And he lays out those terms according to the law. The young man leaves sorrowfully, it says. Because Jesus makes painfully clear you can't do enough good things to get to heaven. Now when the apostles heard this, they were kind of anxious. And they said, well, if you can't do enough good things to earn eternal life, then who can be saved? And Jesus confirms their worst fears. With man, it's impossible. So basically he says, it's impossible to be saved. But then he offers them hope. Because he says, with God, 
all things are possible. So what is good then? What is good is God's words, God's will, God's intentions, God's purposes. There is no other measure of good. Good is what God says is good. All else, to one degree or another, is evil. Whenever the topic of God's goodness comes up, invariably the question is always posed, well, if God is so good and he created all things, why did he create evil? And I don't want to spend the rest of my time parsing what's wrong with that question, but I want to address it. Because you hear a lot of people ask it, and on the surface, it seems reasonable. But it's not. The simple answer is God did not create evil. In fact, evil's not really a thing. It's a distortion or a perversion of a good thing that God made. So you can have good without evil. But you can't have evil without good. Evil occurs when human freedom is used in opposition to God's intent and purposes. When we choose to oppose God, goodness is diminished in the world. And that is evil. Interestingly enough, the slogan of one of the largest corporations on earth, Google, is, this is their official corporate slogan, don't be evil. That's their official corporate slogan. I don't know if you know that. But, could somebody get that? But who at Google actually determines what is good so that evil will not be done? Do they have like a vice president of goodness? What standard do they use to judge evil? What standard do you use? Remember Jesus' comment to the rich young ruler? You judge by human standards. But we can never understand what is good and what is evil judging from our own criteria. We can only find good in God, in understanding and knowing his intentions, his desire, and his will. God in every situation and circumstance at all times with everyone will be found to be good and to have acted with goodness. It is impossible for God to do that which is not good because what God does defines goodness. It is possible that God might do something or allow something that while it does not appear good to me, might be good if viewed from his perspective. We are finite in our understanding. God is infinite. We have a temporal, immediate frame of reference. God's is eternal. When something bad happens and we observe evil, the enemy attempts to exploit our ignorance 
our limited point of view, our anger, our frustration, in order to get us to blame God. If God were good, he says, he wouldn't allow such things to happen. Well, God certainly could have created a universe without the possibility of evil. He just would have had to remove from us all free will. A race of little robot automatons under his control would do no evil. But we would also be incapable of worship. We would be incapable of love. And love is ultimately what the universe is all about. God gave us free will and it is in the exercise of that free will that we either create evil by choosing that which opposes God's will or do good by choosing that which is in harmony with God's will. We create evil, not God. Now if you've heard any of the other messages I've given, you know I'm kind of fond about, of the book of Genesis and I like the first chapters. They kind of set the stage, well, for everything. They tell a story about a man and his wife and God and the serpent, the devil. We don't actually know a whole lot about the devil except that he's a spiritual being created by God who at some point, for some reason, decided to oppose God and his will. This is when evil first appeared. If goodness is defined as that which God's will then evil is most simply defined as that which is in any way in opposition to God's will. We don't understand all that was involved in the devil's opposition, but we do know a part of it was his desire to turn Adam and Eve away from God. Genesis gives us the account of the temptation of Eve, the fall of Adam and Eve from grace, and the resultant break and fellowship between God and all of their descendants. Paul declares of the devil, we are not ignorant of his schemes. But essentially, the devil really only has one scheme. There's only one power available to him to attempt to accomplish this opposition of God's purposes. It is the power of the lie. This has been the case from the beginning, and it has not changed. There's this old adage, you know, people would say, the devil made me do it. The devil cannot make anyone do anything. He could not make Eve disobey and eat from the tree. He could not make Jesus throw himself down from the temple. He cannot make you follow your flesh your selfish ambitions and your lust instead of God's spirit. He can't make you. He's a liar. And he's not just well-practiced, skillful, and persuasive. He is the progenitor of lies. John eight forty four. Jesus, chastising the Pharisees, describes him this way. You belong to your father, the devil, you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, 
not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native tongue, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So the devil has this one scheme to lie, and he basically only has one lie. He has a multitude of ways to shape it and color it and decorate it and present it and a multitude of methods at his disposal to propagate it. The devil's very fond of the internet, by the way. He is a high bandwidth account. He does. Sometimes he loudly proclaims this lie and sometimes he whispers it quietly in the dark. Sometimes he mixes the lie with a little truth stirred in. Sometimes he just lays it right out there, bold-faced as you please. This is the lie of the garden. It was the temptation given to Eve. And here is the lie of the evil one in Genesis. Hear it. And thank God he has redeemed us from it in his son, Jesus Christ. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? He's testing her. Because God most certainly did not say they couldn't eat from any of the trees in the garden. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the tree that was in the middle of the garden. So Eve's doing okay. She's holding her own. And you must not touch it or you will die. So here's a very subtle thing. God never said they couldn't touch it. Here's what God said from Genesis 2.15. And the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Never said anything about touching it. So either Adam didn't do a good job passing on this command of God to his wife, or Eve, for some reason, had decided to add to what God said or embellish it or put kind of her own yeah I think this would be good too that we don't touch it but as she faces this formidable deceitful adversary she's exposed a weakness she doesn't fully understand God's word and I would say to all my sisters in Christ out there Study to know God's word. And my brothers in Christ, study to know God's word so you may teach your families his truth and his ways. So here the serpent counters with the lie. You will not certainly die. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So what is this lie, this this one lie to rule them all? This is the lie. God 
is not good. That's the lie. You can find good, be good, apart from God. But the entire testament of human history, billions of lives, over thousands of years of its existence, despite all the efforts and activities and philosophies and best intentions and romantic imaginings can be summed up in this tragic conclusion. No, you can't. You can't find good outside of God. When God created Adam, he created him good, but he also created him free. However, in creating Adam free, God indirectly created the possibility of evil, while not creating evil itself. When Adam chose to disobey God, he made this possibility of evil a reality. Same scenario played out when Satan fell by failing to serve and obey God. Evil is not a direct creation of God. Rather, evil is the result of persons, both angelic and human, exercising their freedom wrongly, thinking that they can find goodness apart from God. Now, the devil earnestly de desired to defeat our Lord by turning him from his path and the work that the Father had given him, his death on the cross. The devil would say to him, a torturous death? Why, that's not good for you. You're special. You're the son. You deserve to rule on earth. You deserve to be served. You deserve to be respected and loved, not rejected. But he failed. God was intent upon the Father. Jesus was intent upon the Father's will. For this is what is good. Jesus prayed, My Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. So the devil failed, failed to dissuade Jesus from the cross. And he earnestly desires to thwart the purposes of God in making us less effective in following Christ doing the work God has for us and blinding as many as he can who have yet to believe to the good news of God's salvation in Christ. So our ability to do good is dependent on us understanding what God's will is, what he defines as good. Jesus said in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Read that as do good. You will do good. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Actually, apart from Jesus, we can do all kinds of things. And often we do. We don't need Jesus to do stuff. But without him, it's just stuff. Apart from him, Apart from understanding the Father's will, we can do nothing truly 
good. Because of God's grace, we know what is good. Because we're able to know God, we can know his will. Because of God's grace, you and I have been shown goodness in Christ Jesus. As followers of Christ individually and as a church corporately here at Covenant, we want to be known as people who do good. Not because we're trying to gain God's approval. We've been adopted just as we are through his grace, through the sacrifice Jesus made for us. We're not doing good to appease God. God is not angry at you. He has forgiven you. He loves you. And he sent Jesus to bring you back to him. We want to do good because we know and love a good God. And just as with our Lord Jesus, we are able to hear what he's saying. We are able to see what he's doing and want to do the same. What is God saying to you? What do you see him doing? That's what you want to be doing. That is good. We have a great honor and a special privilege and special responsibility given to us. And I'll close with this verse from 1 Peter 2.9. It says, You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God. For he called you out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. God is good, and our purpose as his people, his priests, his children, is to demonstrate his goodness to others so that they might know him. And there's nothing more rewarding in life than to be the bringers of the news that God is good, and therefore we have hope.